And I want to invite you to find your Bible and open uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as we move into the third chapter of this. And our message today is going to be titled, Seated in Righteousness. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. I'm reminded that in order to see the benefits of what comes tomorrow, we have to plant the things today that we will grow and what will be harvested that God gives us for our future. And today we're going to examine a few of those things. Now, you may be like me, getting really excited for springtime. We love the winter thaw and the flip-flop season and getting back into being outside and growing. But I want to share an image with you. If you ever do any kind of gardening, if you have horse pastures or you're planting food plots or you're looking for the right soil to grow what type of plant in, you know that little device that's in that man's hands right there is called a soil sampler. He takes it and he sticks it in the ground and he digs it in and he pulls out the soil sample and he shakes off the dirt in this little bucket. And then what he's going to do with that, he's going to send that off to a lab and that laboratory is going to examine the contents that are inside of that soil. And when they do that, they're going to understand that that soil content is going to tell them a few things specifically about that soil. It's going to help them determine what will grow in that area, but it's also going to tell them what is needed to help other things to grow. And I would argue that soil sample is much like what Paul is talking to us about in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to see in verses 1 through 9 where Paul is taking a literal soil sample of what's going on in the life of the church in Corinth. And he's examining what's happening there and he's going to give them some instruction of what they need to be doing to make sure that the seed of righteousness in that church and in all churches can grow vibrantly to have indeed that life that Jesus said, I've come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. So today I want to invite you as we look at the scriptures together to turn to your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, oh, excuse me, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when you find your place like me, that is in the New Testament, right? What happens when you don't mark your Bible before you get up to the pulpit and you're scrambling to talk and find your place? All right, we'll let the fingers do our walking, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to read, follow along in your version. The scripture is up on the screen, and again, if you don't have a Bible, it is our greatest gift to give you one. There's some in your pews, please take them as a gift. If you know someone that needs a Bible, take that and give them the word of life, and they can read for themselves. And here's the promise. When you read the word of life, God and the Holy Spirit will come into your life in a way that will knock your socks off. And he will show you truly, because he lives, we can face tomorrow through his holy word. So let's read together God's holy word, picking up in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
Let us pray together over the reading of God's Word. So, Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the salvation that comes by no other name but the name of Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the transformation of your Word in our life that makes us conformed into your image. And we thank you for what Paul has left for us through the inspired Word, what you have given us through his hand and have kept it safely for us to read this day some 2,000 years later. Father, we thank you for its instruction. I pray now that our minds would be open, our hearts would be stirred, and you would comfort those who are needing comfort today, who are challenged. And Father, I pray that you challenge those of us who are comfortable in the routine things of your work. So Father, we thank you now. We praise you. Have your way with all that is said and shared. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what do I want to share with you today as we look at this seeds of righteousness that need to be sown. I want to give you four principles as we work through these nine short verses of Scripture on four principles for cultivating righteousness in our, in our Christian walk. Now again, I say Christian walk. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you cannot cultivate righteousness in your life. I'll share a little bit more about that. But if you are in Christ, then Paul is speaking to the church. You ever noticed that in the New Testament, the majority of the books written that we have, the majority of the instruction that has been given was not given for the heathen, was not given for the Greek, was not given even for the Jew. It was given to the church. It was given to believers who have put their trust and faith in Christ. Why? So we may indeed understand principles that help us cultivate light righteousness in our church, in our corporate life, and in our individual life. So I want to share with you four principles for how do we do this. Number one, I want to share with you when you plant seeds, you need to avoid dead seed. Avoid dead seed. What do I mean by that? If you've ever bought seeds at the store and nothing comes up, sometimes seeds can just die. And, and when you plant them, you've spent a lot of effort and a lot of time, and they don't produce anything. Dead seeds. How do we avoid dead seeds? I want to share with you in the verse 1 and 2 the contrast in Christian character that Paul is talking about in this text. He's referring to what he is seeing as dead seeds in the church that are not growing and not doing anything valuable, valiant for the effort of the gospel. Look at verse 1 and 2 again with me. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. You see, right off the bat, we see that to avoid dead seeds, that there's an understanding we have to have in our life of this challenge between the spiritual fight and what's happening and the fleshly fight in our life. There's a battle between the spirit and the flesh in our Christian walk, and we've got to be aware of that. Too often I hear people say, come to Jesus and he'll make everything better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'll make some things better, the main thing, but there's going to be other things that are going to challenge you every single day in your Christian walk. Because there is a battle that rages within even the believer of living in this carnal fleshly body and living in the spiritual way that God would have us through the endowment of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write an entire area in Romans chapter 7, and even Paul, the apostle, writing 50% of the New Testament, he says this, Woe is me. Why do I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do? Oh, what a wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this? Ah, but Christ Jesus. You see, there's a battle that goes on in our life, and there was a battle happening in the Corinthian church that Paul saw happening. He says people that should have been spiritual. Notice the contrast. Spiritual people versus people of the flesh. And I would argue today in my experiences in church, in my Christian walk with the body of Christ, the majority of challenges we have in the church 
The majority of the reasons we don't reach people with the gospel, the majority of the reasons the church doesn't flourish, the majority of the reasons our light grows dim for the gospel is because we are taking on the flesh and not the spiritual nature of what God's given us. But when a church is focused on the spiritual, when Jesus is the, the, the point of our focal point, when Jesus is where our eyes are fixed, boy, those churches are flourishing. I get to experience churches all over North Carolina and other states And when I talk with pastors and at conferences and other Christian leaders, I ask them, what do you think the root cause is that's making your church vibrant for the kingdom of God? Well, pastor, all we're doing is preaching the word of God. We're loving like Jesus would love his people. We're being true to the word of God and we're letting it guide everything we do. Folks, those are the churches today that even in COVID are experiencing growth and prosperity and blessings from our our Father in heaven because they're focused on the spiritual and not on the fleshly. There's a contrast here of dead seeds. Paul's making us aware. Dead seeds don't grow. Dead seeds don't grow. I remember uh, an illustration of character for a job interview where three men applied for the same job and all three applicants were given a little bag of seeds. And they were told, go home and nurture this for three months. And at the end of three months, I want you to bring back the the pot and the plant of what you're supposed to grow, and that will tell me how well you nurtured for that plant. And depending on how well you grew that plant is whether or not I will consider you for the job. So the three men went their way, and one grew a seed, and one put his seed in the pot, and two of them kind of forgot about it a little bit, but all three of them planted what they were given. But all three of them, none of, nothing sprouted. After a few weeks, nothing was coming up. And two of them got real worried. They wasn't sure what was happening. After about a month and a half, nothing was still growing. They went out and they bought some different seeds and they came back and they planted the different seeds and all of a sudden they sprung up and they thought, phew, I'm still in the running. Well, all three show back up 90 days later at the interview and lo and behold, the one man who kept the original seeds shows up and in his pot there was nothing. But the other two who had gone out and bought their own seed, their plants grew two and a half feet, three feet. They thought, man, we are a shoe in for this job. And when I sat before the CEO who was doing the final hiring interview, the two men came in with the plants, and the CEO said, those are beautiful-looking plants. Well done. Go ahead and head out into the lobby. I'll call you in a few minutes. And then the third man who had the original seed comes in with just a pot with nothing. And he begins to explain to the CEO how he cared for it, how he nurtured it, how he did all he could, how he checked the soil, how he even had the soil sample tested he says, sir, I don't know what to tell you. I've done all, all I know to do to make this grow, and it's not going to grow. And the CEO looked at him and said, well done. You have the job. And the other two out in the lobby are scratching their head wondering, what in the world's going on? How did this guy get the job? And then the CEO let him in on the joke that all three seeds had been boiled. None of them were going to grow, but he was checking the honesty and integrity and the character of the workforce. The one who was honest and had integrity, who was focused, got the job. You know, when God gives us seeds to plant, we can let God worry about how he will grow that seed. That's not our job to grow his church. In Matthew 18, 16, Jesus makes it very clear that I will build my church and the kingdom of hell will not come over it. What a wonderful reminder for us is if we're faithful, if we're spiritually focused, not on the flesh, God will indeed grow his church. But notice the second comparison and contrast. In verses 2, he compares them to infants in Christ versus that of spiritually mature. 
One of the challenges we have in churches today is we've got our measurement for metrics all mixed up. We measure how many we seat, not how many we send, as our measure of success. We measure our offerings and our financial blessings instead of how many are we winning to Christ every year. We measure our attendance versus how often is our baptistry wet and new believers coming to Christ. We get our measures messed up a little bit. So how do we measure spiritual maturity versus that of infants? Paul is making it clear here that it's difficult in this church to be able to move past the the minor things into other things because we're not ready to handle it. Let me share with you Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Another reference the Hebrew writers, the Hebrew writer would make about this issue. Now let me let you in on a little traditional historical issues on the writer of the Hebrews. Some believe Paul wrote it. Some believe there are about eight different candidates that could have written the book of Hebrews. Some believe Apollos wrote it. We don't know for sure. With the canons, there's no way to confirm that. We have our different beliefs. But isn't it interesting that Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church talking about infants and maturity, spiritual milk, solid food, and then the writer of Hebrews, and if it was Apollos, Apollos was one of the pastors in the Corinthian church. Hear what Hebrews, the writer, tells us about this same issue. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Isn't it wonderful that God's word doesn't contradict itself? that over and over, the best way to validate Scripture is with other Scripture. The writer of Hebrews recognized this challenge of infancy versus the spiritual mature, the ability to get off the milk and start consuming solid food. Don't we do that with our children when we're raising them? At first born, they're born, and we begin to give them that, that wonderful milk that they need to grow with all the vitamins and things in it, and then all of a sudden, we're just tickled pink or blue. When they start eating that little green jar of stuff and you start feeding it in that little rubber spoon, y'all remember the days and that baby just smiling, making a mess everywhere, right? Daddy's sitting back watching them paint the walls next to the high chair with green slime, hoping he bought the good paint so he could wipe it off. We remember those days and all of a sudden he begins eating the real food and now he's reaching and grabbing the macaroni off your plate with his hands and getting it all over the place. And then all of a sudden, he's saying, hey, Dad, would you throw another steak on the grill for me? Right? Like, get your own steak, boy. Right? But that's how it happens. We grow. A spiritual growth. That should be an an understanding for us mentally of what happens for us in Christ. Not that we don't need continued instruction, right? If you've ever parented grown children, amen? You know that the role may change. You become mentor to those, those grown children, but you're still there to give guidance and instruction and help them along the way, whether they want it or not, right? We know there's a growth in our life. Even as we become senior in life, we still look for others to help us make wise decisions with some things. Paul is calling the church to no longer be on the milk That's good for a little while, but we should all be striving to be spiritually mature to some level. And that spiritual maturity has no finished date until the Lord calls us home. 
It's a consistent walk that we have with him for all eternity. And lastly, I want to share with you, notice what happens at the very end of verse 2. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. You ever miss out on an opportunity because you just weren't ready? John Maxwell says this about luck. He says, luck is defined as preparation meeting with opportunity. He says, when I prepared well and I've had the opportunity, when those two things collide, that's what I would define luck being. There's no such thing as luck. We either prepare for it, or when the opportunity comes, you've missed your time to prepare. You ever had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, and you didn't because you didn't feel prepared? Didn't think you knew enough? Didn't think you were good enough? Maybe you were dabbling in a little bit of sin in your life, and you felt a little convicted that who am I to share the gospel with someone? I'm a sinner too. Who am I to condemn a person? Again, we don't condemn anybody. We just share the gospel with love, with graciousness. Try to show them the grace of Jesus. But man, isn't it interesting when we're not ready for the opportunity, how that opportunity can skip us. What we are tomorrow depends upon what we are committed to today. What we are tomorrow depends on what we are committed to today. Think about that. In any endeavor you've been involved in your life, whether it's getting fit, whether it's purchasing real estate, whether it's getting a promotion in your job, whatever it may be in your life, what you were committed to at that moment is what helped you achieve your goal for tomorrow. Folks, if we're not committed to spiritually growing through the intake of God's Word, through the study of His Scriptures, through systematic, regular fellowship with the body and worship of Christ, how can we expect to reach maturity tomorrow? Potential versus reality. Man, we have so much potential. We have yet to realize what our reality could be if we would focus on avoiding dead seeds in our life. Understanding the contrast of Christian character versus that of our old nature of the flesh. We shared yesterday at a wonderful service that passage. Miss Ashley shared it with us, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, right? If any man be in Christ, he is therefore a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. If we are in Christ Jesus, then we can avoid the dead seeds by growing in our Christian character. But secondly, I want you to turn your attention to verses 3 and 4 for a moment. When we're planting something, we also got to be on the lookout and recognize the weeds that are growing amongst us. Look in verses 3 and 4. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? You see, there was a contrast of who was leading this church in Corinth. Paul had been the a founding pastor and leader, and then Apollos, we believe, became the second pastor of that church, a man from Alexandria, well-versed and well-taught in oratory. He was a great speaker, a highly educated man. You may remember him from around Acts chapter 18 when he was proclaiming the gospel. And then Prisca and Aquila had to pull him aside and teach him more accurately the way because he was doing good, but he didn't quite have it all the way he needed to have it. So what did they do? They didn't dime him out in the church business meeting. They pulled him aside and said, hey, come have dinner with me and bring your Bible. I, I want to share a few things so you can understand. Now, this man from Alexandria, a learned man, educated, schooled, in oratory, in history, and the things of the Old Testament, he would have understand these things. 
You know what he didn't do? He didn't say, what are you going to teach me? You didn't go to Alexandria. You didn't attend a university. You don't speak seven languages. What do you got for me? But instead, in humility, he was glad to be brought aside and said, you know what? I'm ready to listen. Let me hear what you got to say. Because, man, it's going to help me be better. You see, recognizing the weeds in our own life. Let me give you a couple weeds we can identify. What motivates us in the flesh? What motivates us in discipleship and in worship? Number one, the key motivator in all of our lives is worship. The motivator of worship. Now, whether you're saved or not, the motivator for all of us, I would argue, is worship and what you worship. Because what we worship drives us all, both the believer and the unbeliever. It's an issue of who is the God of our life. Let me share with you, you can write it in your margins, a place where you can find more information on on this issue of how do we know what we're worshiping. Paul writes a letter to the Galatian church. Galatia was getting all bound up again over this issue of legalism. Don't do this, don't touch, don't taste, don't smell, don't sniff, don't scratch. What, What was going on in the Galatian church was legalism was creeping back in. So let me share with you what he writes to the Galatian church briefly. How do we know what is bad worship from good worship? Well, Paul defines this issue of the flesh, the sarks, if you will, in the Greek. What is the issue of the sarks, our fleshly nature? He writes Galatians 5, 19 through 21 to clearly identify it. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. What's that mean? You can't miss it, right? You can't miss it. It's right in front of your face. You know what the works of the flesh are. They are evident. Here he goes to list them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and the likes of these things. Anybody need me to read that list again? Did you get it all? Galatians 5.19, you can find it all listed right there, right? He says the thing that's motivating the people in the flesh are all of those. But he goes on, he says, and I warn you as I warned you before. Isn't it funny that Paul can warn us in his letters and give a strong rebuke? But Lord, you better not do that in the church today. You start warning people and they start telling you, you need to go find a different church to pastor, right? But isn't that our role as overseer, as shepherd, as elder, as Sunday school teacher, as deacon, as leaders in our church, as brothers and sisters who care about one another when we see them going astray? He says, I warned you before that you do not do such things, for you will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do we know that we're a new creation? Because God convicts us of our sin and he takes it from us and we no longer want our sin more than we want our Savior. God fixes, as one man once said, he fixed my wanter. I can sin all I want to, but I no longer want to. I want to live for Christ. That's the motivator of poor worship, the motivator of the flesh, of the sarks. Well, what's the motivator of good worship? He goes on to tell us in Galatians 5, and 25, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And he gives us a motivator to help us understand our need to keep up. A motivator of keeping up. What's he give us? If you'll write down in your margins, Galatians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, 
provoking one another, envying one another. When I came across this passage and, and reading and studying, and what's it mean to, to keep in step with the Spirit, to keep up with something? And I couldn't help but, but think of this photograph real quick, and I'll share it with you. If you've ever been at a military parade or if you've ever seen soldiers marching and you've ever been a part of any of that, notice the man there in the front with the belt on and the big campaign cover hat, right? The grizzly bear hat, the Smokey the Bear hat. He's swinging a sword. He's leading that group. And often when they're marching, that, that lead drill instructor is counting cadence and he's sounding off left, right, left, right, left, right, left, all that good stuff. He's probably singing a little song to help keep them in step. But notice the footprints. When you look at the boots, everybody's left foot is forward. Everybody's right foot is to the rear. Right? The guy that wasn't, he fell out, and they've already gotten rid of him. But uh, Everybody's in step. Why? Because somebody's keeping cadence, and everybody else is following the cadence of the man that's leading them. When Paul says, keep up with the Spirit, I believe that's the image in our life, that it's the Holy Spirit that is calling the cadence in our life that we're to follow. And when he says left, we put our left foot forward. When he says right, we put our red foot forward. When he says stop, we all stop together. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does when he leads us. If we get in step with the Spirit, as he says, then we truly can live by the Spirit. And God will direct our steps, and he will keep his church on the path and the direction that he wants it to go to. What a beautiful understanding when we pick out the weeds and understand what stops the seeds of righteousness from growing in the life of a body of Christ. But thirdly, I want to share with you, if you'll turn your attention to verses 5 and 7. Verses 5 and 7. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There's some characteristics that we can draw out of these two verses of Scripture, three verses of Scripture that Paul is giving us. Some characteristics that we can employ in our own service as we indeed sow our fields that God's called us to sow the seeds of righteousness in. What's the first one? Number one, I want to share with you a replicating behavior. There's a replicating behavior that Paul, Apollos, and those who minister to, they are replicating something they saw. And what they saw was Jesus. What they saw was godliness. What they're calling them out to do is to serve. Notice in verse 5, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? And he summarizes, diakonos, servant. That's what we are. If any of you desires to see the kingdom of God, he must serve, right? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The role model that Jesus left for us, that replicating behavior, Apollos and Paul knew it well that they were there to serve the body of Christ, to serve the non-believer as well through their actions and the proclamation of truth. They were replicating the behavior of the Savior in being servant to all the very dissension that was happening in the Corinthian church, or some were for Apollos, but some were Paul. Paul saying, what were we? We were nothing more than servants. We need to replicate the behavior of Christ in our life. When we do that, our seeds will begin to grow. They will take shoot and spring up and break the soil, and we will begin to see the efforts of our labor. But notice the second part, there's reciprocating grace 
that goes on. Those servants, notice the Scripture tells us, through whom you believed. You see, the very grace applied to Paul, the very grace applied to Apollos, the very grace applied to you and me that forgave us of our sins, that allowed us to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, is the same grace we are to extend to others. And Paul says, the very grace I had, I gave to you. You're who you are now because of what I shared with you. Because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. We were servants through whom you believed. Reciprocating grace. Extending the grace to others. The same grace that you receive. Have you ever come across that passage of Scripture that says, for the measure of forgiveness that's been, that you've used will be applied unto you? And I'm paraphrasing. Right? Boy, that just kind of makes me shudder a little bit. It's a reminder to look in the mirror and, and, and right when that guy cuts me off, thank you, Jesus. Right? You have that moment of, of just abounding grace that what is grace? I didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it, but I'm going to give it anyway. What a, what a picture of reciprocating grace, giving it forward because God gave it to me. You think of, think of someone in your life right now that is just caught up in sin, that's living a lifestyle that is absolutely away from God, that is doing things, maybe, maybe they even know better. Maybe they have made a profession of faith at once in their life, but they're just living in a backslidden, sinful state, and they know it, and you know it. Are you condemning them, or are you trying to win them back to the Lord? How are you trying to be graceful in their life. Now, I'm not saying condone sin whatsoever, but there's a way we can do it, and there's a way we ought not to do it, to love them. Jesus loved the sinner while he hated the sin. How do we know he hated it? He was willing to die for it, to eradicate it. There's a lot of things I'm willing to die for, right? but none of us were willing to do what Jesus did. I love my children, would die for them, but I'm not going to die for any of y'all. Just, I mean, that's just the way it is, right? I mean, how many would die for a righteous man, but surely none for an unrighteous man, Scripture says. Reciprocating grace. We give to others because Christ first gave to us. Why do we love? Because for Christ, God first loved us. We can understand that. But thirdly, there's reliable faithfulness. Reliable faithfulness. You ever wonder why farmers do most of their maintenance in the winter? Because when the sun finally breaks... And when the ground temperature gets to that right spot, they don't have time to be doing something tomorrow they should have done yesterday. They need to get the seed in the ground. Notice the reliable faithfulness of Paul and Apollos in verse 6. He goes on to say, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. They were reliable in fulfilling whatever role they were assigned. And we're going to see that in a moment. They were faithful in doing what God had called them to. Whatever station of life you are in is where God has called you into a relationship with Him, and He wants us to be faithful in that area. He is not calling every believer to run off the seminary. Thank the Lord. right? He's not calling every believer to run to the mission field. But He is calling all of us, male and female, to proclaim the good news of Jesus until He returns, to live a life that we can say when we go out into the, to the fields, we are truly sowing righteousness. 
reliable. Aren't we glad that Apollos was faithful in watering something that Paul had planted? You know, here's the understanding that Apollos came after Paul and began to shepherd the church, providing the water so that it would grow. But who gave it the growth? God gave it the growth. Remember, it's God's church. It's not your preacher's eloquence. It's not his education. It's not the color of your carpet. It's not the quality of your worship music. It's not the facilities of your building. Those things don't grow the church of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God grows the church. Reliable and faithfulness. Now, do those other things, can they hinder us? You better believe it, right? Because if y'all heard me singing this morning for, for worship, some of y'all might not come back, right? So, man, that's just painful. That's too much I can bear. I know we've got to bear it for the Lord and carry our cross, but, brother, that's just more than I can handle, right? We're going to be reliable in the station that God called us with the giftings that he's called us to serve him with. But lastly, notice number four in the very last text of verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Folks, all that we do in our Christian walk, every time we sow a field, we've got to rely upon God to provide the harvest. We may share the gospel a hundred times and never see anyone except Jesus Christ. I preach more often than not with no decisions afterwards publicly made known. Now, I don't know what the Spirit of God is doing in the life of those who hear the word proclaimed, but man, could you imagine if a preacher let it bother them every time they preached if someone didn't come forward and accept Jesus? I preached my heart out! Folks, it ain't about me. I'm going to water where God tells me to water. I'm going to plow around whatever stumps that God tells me to plow around and will rely upon God for the harvest. At the end of the day, it's His church, and He will be faithful, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Number four, let me share with you in closing this last part. Y'all might get out of here in time to beat the Methodist. <laughs> part four, share in the harvest. What are we to share in? Let me share, fix your attention on verses eight through nine. So he who plants and he who waters, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I heard it said once, many streams make a mighty river, mighty rivers make mighty oceans. If we're all faithful in working together, this issue of convergence, if you will, the convergence of unity that we have here, when we share in the work together, will help us be all that God has called us to be. So number four, we've got to share in the harvest. And when we share in the harvest, there is indeed a convergence of unity that happens Let me give you four more principles. We'll close with these. For how do we share together and what's going on that we see in the text? Number one, notice that there's shared teamwork amongst the different people there in Corinth. Apollos, Paul, and others who had a hand in the work. There was shared teamwork, a unity of effort. We define unity effort as all streams moving together for the same purpose. We're united in understanding what is our mission here. To encounter God, to equip for life, to evangelize the world. That's our mission here as His church. I'd argue that's every church's mission. To equip the saints for the work of the mystery. To proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. We all share in that mission. That is not just the deacon, Sunday school teacher, pastor's role. That's the church's role. 
And when we share in that, we see great unity in the body of Christ. When we understand where we fit in the puzzle, we all together bring clarity so that the image of whatever that looks like can be seen for all to view. So we've got to have shared teamwork together. Secondly, notice there is an individual value placed on what you do personally. Look in verse 8, the second part of it for a minute. And I want you to focus on this. This was just, wow, a wow moment for me. For each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, what's that saying? Folks, that's saying you're not going to be compared to me. I'm not going to be compared to you. How you sing, how you play, how you speak, how you teach, how you study, we're not competing against one another. God is going to give us wages according to what we have done individually. Now, we're challenged with that, aren't we? Thinking, man, if he's better than me in that area, then they might not need me. You don't know how many pastors I see and counsel with that are trying to do everything in their church because if they let anybody else do it, then that's job security. And, 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 and if I'm not doing it all, then they're not going to like me and think they can get rid of me because they paid me to do it. And the reality is the Scripture tells us to be equipping the body of Christ for the work of the ministry, to give ministry away. Man, imagine, imagine that. If everybody was plugged in doing their part, how much more we together could do. But there's an individual value placed here that you will receive your wages according to your work and that I'm not being compared against anybody else. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, Jesus talks about the labors in the vineyard. And we've got just a moment, so you're not going to get out early. Let me read this text to you. For the kingdom of, of heaven, this is Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to his hired laborers for his, to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour, and at the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owners of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only a few hours, and you have made them equal to us who have borne more, borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But Jesus replied, but he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Isn't it beautiful that our Savior loves us individually, differently, but the same? 
And aren't you glad that the first will be last and the last will be first? What a beautiful picture for us. And that individually, how God values our work for him. But thirdly, there's a shared responsibility. I love this word if you read in verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. Now, when we study that word synergos in the Greek, it's where we get our word synergy from. Now, we understand what synergy means. We're all moving in the right direction. All the energy is going where it's supposed to go. We have harmony and balance and synergy. You ever drive a tire on a car that is out of balance for the rest of them? As soon as you let go of the steering wheel, it pulls to the right, right? It's not in synergy with the rest of them, is it? It's out of balance. Something's got to get fixed. Folks, when the church understands its shared responsibilities as fellow workers, there is indeed synergy in what God's church can do to reach the lost and to be the kingdom of God here on earth. But lastly, in verse 9, notice that all things are God's possessions. All things. What Jesus leave us with in Matthew 20? Am I not allowed to do with what I choose, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You see, God has given us all of these things. And notice in the last part of that verse, you are God's field, God's building. Let me phrase it another way. You belong to God. And if we belong to God as believers in Christ Jesus, then we're all called to share in the harvest, to converge in unity. Let me give you an image of what we see too often in the church today. What we see too often in our spiritual life, in our walk with Christ, we see something that we don't have to work very hard to plant. And if we don't manage it, it quickly gets out of control. And before you know it, you can't even see the harvest field because of the thorns and thistles and briars and weeds that have grown up around us. They can just choke the life out of us in our Christian walk. But when we focus on Christ, when we are sowing seeds of righteousness in our life, when we are not divided by controversies or genealogies or preferences or any of those other things of the flesh, here's what we see. I think this is a great image of what Jesus shared with us in John 10.10. He says, the the devil comes, the the robber comes to kill, rob, and destroy, but I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. See, that would be a visual image of seeds of righteousness that are growing. Beautiful fields, abundance, plush. I want to lay down there like, I'm going to take my nap there this afternoon, right? What a beautiful image of what God wants to do in our life and in your life when we were focused on avoiding the thorns, weeding them out, doing the work, and then focusing on God's righteousness. Let's sow some seeds of righteousness as we go out to lunch today. Tip like you ain't never tipped before. Like, stupid tip. Like, like three times your meal cost. See what happens. See if you don't get an opportunity to share something with that waitress or waiter. Be generous to those family members that are just cantankerous. Love them anyway. See if they don't ask you, what's gotten into you today? Tell them a little bit of Jesus. You want them in you? I'll share with you how. Amen? Let's pray together as we close our service. So, Father God, we thank you for the blessings of your word. We thank you for the the commitment to making disciples of all nations. We thank you for the renewed spirit in our life. And we thank you that you've given us clarity on how we indeed can sow seeds of righteousness in our daily walk with you.